When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. And I said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good luck. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. <laughs> second captain, first captain, whatever. It's the Irish Times Second Captain's Podcast. I'm Mike Devin and I'm here with Kieran Murphy and Ken Erty. Hello, hey, how are you doing? My, I'm doing pretty good because my ideal Monday generally... I'm doing pretty well. My ideal Monday generally starts with one of Ireland's top sports people having a world title in the bag pre-7am. So today is a good day with Katie Taylor winning her fifth successive world championship. Sorry, just, just, sorry, just to clear this up. Do you prefer if it happens it's at, you know just before 7am or is it at any stage in the weekend... Proceeding no, pre seven a.m. on a Monday. Okay, sorry. Yeah, okay. No, to be I, honest, I mean, our, just, you know, Ireland beat Australia on Saturday. That success is it means nothing by Monday. You need You're like Roy Keane. Well, you, you know, know the, the yeah, we've got an instantaneous sort of society. Exactly. The joy of victory lasts mere seconds in <laughs> McDevitt's head. It's immediately what's next. But also, are the Dublin hurlers playing a challenge game? You know, <laughs> you know, I got, I got to move on. Where, where's my next fix coming from? Well, when you get up at sort of 6am 6, 6 as well to watch the sporting you always feel like you've invested almost as much as the sports person yeah that's true no it's it's, it's, it's true. roughly comparable yes uh, to make such a sacrifice uh, as to get up at 6 o'clock and watch, and watch it I mean and then go back to bed afterwards I mean it's really it's an did you, did you go back to bed actually no I didn't no no, no. You, you paired on through I know I know via Twitter that a lot of people actually start their work day around 7 o'clock or at least get up to go to work so I figured <laughs> Might as well join the rat race <laughs> <laughs> by so heading downstairs. Yeah. So, you know, I, I actually watched Match of the Day too, which I had recorded from last night. That's, oh, that's, that's what I did. God. So yeah. every hour is a working hour for Roman Kevin. <laughs> no such thing as nine to five. Katie spent quite a bit of time in the ceremony afterwards, studying the medal itself. I noticed that she kept glancing down at. It. I'm sure this is something we'd all do if we just won a gold, but I can only guess that she's. She's looking at it and immediately comparing it to the other four that she has. You know, the, the one in 12 is a little small. This one's more like, this is more like it. This is more like the Golden Barbados from 2010. Nice and big and fat and chunky. Yeah, yeah. It no, was I, a kind of a two-tone number, this, uh, this one. <laughs> it was a silver, a gold uh, center and then silver surrounding that. Like the two-euro coin. Imagine a giant two-euro coin and that's mm. basically what it looked like. Down O'Neill. Sorry, Murphy, you were... No, uh, he's just like, fascinated by my metal chat there. I no, no, and Ken's, Ken's analogy as well. It's all fascinating, don't worry. Darren O'Neill was Ireland's team captain from the 2012 Olympics. He's been in Jeju in South Korea uh, watching the fight and reporting on it. And we're going to chat to him very shortly. Ken, question for you. Medical question. I don't mean to pry into your 
personal circumstances. Yeah. Have you ever had appendicitis? Yes, um, as it happens, I have. Oof. Oh, I remember this. This is before the 2010 World Cup. That's right. Oh, you were in a seriously bad way. I, I was delayed. My arrival at the 2010 World Cup was delayed by appendicitis. Mm. Uh, unfortunately, the day that I had to travel there, I was in hospital, having just had my pen- appendix, my appendicitis removed, my appendix removed. <laughs> Would so, you, uh, do you reckon you'd have been able to coach the Irish rugby team like Joe Schmidt did with appendicitis? I, I saw this the other day, and I have to say, I'm pretty impressed by... Uh, Joe Schmidt um, doing that. Now, I remember when I got it, the lead into it was very unpleasant. I don't want to get too <laughs> technical here, Owen. But it's a disease of, it's, it's, a, it's a problem which, which affects the, um, the intestinal tract. Mm. You know, just at the beginning yeah. of the large intestine there. Okay, oh yeah, yeah, of course. Now, I mean, while, it, while the appendix itself is just a, a, a small, you know, sort of flap of useless tissue and hmm. um, the, the problem is essentially something happens it, get, it becomes infected and sort of angry um, and you'd be surprised at the knock-on effects that can have um, let's just say uh, something as delicate as the digestive system hmm. uh, when it is knocked out of kilter of course, of course. Can, I mean, even uh, the slightest uh, change in the calibrations there yeah it's a diff- it can it can suddenly become difficult to ignore uh, now I remember, I remember having some problems on the Saturday, thinking I don't feel great. You know, I ate some prawns uh, from a from a popular Dublin uh, delivery uh, sort of Thai delivery. I'm not going to name them because I mean I held a grudge against them for a long time. Even after I, I knew that it was actually appendicitis and the prawns had nothing to do with it, it was still <laughs> just the sheer physical trauma of what happened then over the next 24 hours. Yeah. Okay, let's say I thought it was food poisoning to begin with. Yeah. Um, but it just it was it went on too long to be food poisoning. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a there was a lot of trouble. I mean, it wasn't. Well, I mean, my my uh, knowledge of appendicitis was based on what I'd read in the Roald Dahl book, Boy, <laughs> right? Because he gets appendicitis yeah. in Boy. Do you remember yeah, that? Yeah, it's a brilliant book. Yeah, my favorite book of my childhood. I mean, everyone remembers his graphic account of 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 uh, you know being sliced open by the surgeon. But you know, it seems to be it's intestinal or, or abdominal pain in the sort of right right of the abdomen, lower right side. You know, that was that was where he had the problem. Um, I didn't really kind of have that to begin with. I thought it was a lower intestinal issue. So I'm just, I, I thought of Joe Schmidt sitting there watching that game, and I just thought to myself, I, I could see him up there in the mm. in the stands, you know. And I thought there's got to be a bathroom pretty close to there. Mm. I mean, uh, imagine sitting there thinking, "Okay, this game isn't going to isn't going to stop and wait for me." But I really need to. Uh, I mean, what if the camera looks up here, and I'm I've, I seem to have deserted my post? And Joe Schmidt didn't do that. Yeah, he he, he looked quite grey for the entire for the entire day. I must ah, say, we're all saying no, no, I'm, I'm, no, no it's, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm not I, saying I, I called I, it from home. I, I, you know, Joe, I ring RTE and tell them, listen, while Claire has him there. Tom, I think he's, I'm pretty certain he's got appendicitis. But looking back at his interview, he did look a little wan, a little, a little grey. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, I admire the man. He's, uh, he's a strong man and uh, he's got a lot of control over himself, a lot of control over his, over his body. All right, we'll get to Matt Williams and Jerry Thorny shortly. But Simon's popped over from his production booth because, Simon, you met up with, uh, with Johnny Sexton this morning. Yeah, he was at a promotional event for Aer Lingus. They, are, they have a new series of flights to North America, Murph. 
Yeah, New York. I'm being Chicago, a big fan of, of, of that North particular America, part of, of America. The United States and the North. Uh, Canada. It's Canada, can't forget uh, about it. Couldn't Canada. really include Mexico in that. You know, it's probably more of a Central American uh, nation. Anyway, Simon, continue. Quite a bit of interest in Johnny Sexton, given he's just led Ireland to uh, three wins. Well, nine wins from ten now it is, but three wins in a row in the November series. But it, the hype's going to be ine- inevitable, I said to him. Do the players actually care about that and the expectations that uh, are connected to it? You know, the hype is... I'd rather have the hype and be off the back of a great campaign than um, you know, have no hype and a lot of negativity around the Irish team. So um, it works both ways. I think you know, we, we'll have coaches that will keep our feet firmly on the ground with their analysis of the games. And um, you know, We already spoke, I was speaking to a couple of the players on Saturday night, that it's not often you beat Australia and South Africa and not look forward to the review um, come Christmas time. So that's the place where we are and it's great. And um, I know the media and the supporters will, will, will lose the run of themselves in supporting that we don't and just keep our feet firmly on the ground going into the Six Nations. Does, does it feel like a progression from the France game in the Six Nations? Um, because I know a couple of the players said after the South Africa game, they said, no, South Africa obviously number two in the world, but to beat France away in Paris when France played really, really well was still more satisfying? Um, yeah, look, I think... You take each game as it is. It's hard to draw comparisons with, you know, Six Nations game and a November test. Even the, even the, I suppose there's more pressure from the Six Nations. You know, what do we have to show from the last three games? We don't have a trophy. We don't have, you know, anything that says we won something in the record books. We yeah. just have won, you know, a couple of really important games, but uh, they don't really count for much. You know, it'll be more important that we. Uh, produce these results in the Six Nations and World Cup and we have something to show at the end of it um, but it's hard to draw comparisons between winning in Paris or winning a, a game against a tired South African New Zealand or Australian team Does it overall feel like a progression though I know you mentioned the final 10 minutes against Australia where the the decisions in defence in particular were, were better than what we've seen uh, in the past but overall does it feel like the team has progressed since the Six Nations? I think so I think especially with the the injury profile of the squad at the moment um, and the amount of guys that we're missing, I think that's the, probably the most pleasing aspect is that we got two big results against Southern Hemisphere team, the level of performance against Georgia with guys that um, might or might not have been there if, if everyone had been fit. So, you know, we're building a sort of strength and depth that we hadn't we haven't had for a long time through these injuries and um it's just exciting to see what we could do when these guys are back. But no doubt when these guys come back, other guys will pick up knocks and that's just the way things work. And um, But we're missing some world-class guys that we could do with back. Ireland are still kicking quite a lot of ball. Relative to, say, how uh, Leinster played under Schmidt or even Claremont played under Schmidt, um, that's obviously a strategy. It's something you're all comfortable with. Conor Murray has said it before, you know, you got you got to stick with it. Is that something you think you'll move on from or is is that just what's working for Ireland? I think Joe will be first to say it. Like what what he did at club level, um, you know, might not be good enough on the international. You have to play a little bit differently, and that's Joe was definitely um, not changed. His philosophy on rugby is still the same. You go to where the space is, and often in international rugby, teams are so worried about teams attacking them that they play flatter. And I suppose due to Joe and the reputation he has, yeah, teams do play probably a bit, you know. 
13, 14 men in the line and there's a bit of space in the backfield. And, you know, we got a few of our try. We got a try against Australia from, you know, using that space in the backfield. Simon, you know, got on the end of one. We got a couple of uh, tries, you know, from driving miles from great kicks into the backfield where the space was. It's it's not us just kicking for the sake of it. We're kicking to, if there's space in front of us, we'll run it. If there's not, um, often there's no space in the front line or the back line. You've got to kick high and contest and, Put teams under pressure that way. It's not, it's not set in stone. Joe doesn't tell us to kick or not to kick. He, he gives us a, you know, the decisions to make, and we'll look at it. You know, we, we won't look at it this Monday, but we'll look at it in Christmas camp, and he'll say, oh, "I maybe thought you could have run it here, or I thought you should have kicked it here." And I'm sure there'll be times where we ran it, and he'll say, "You know, I thought we might have been better putting it in behind them here." So, um, yeah, look. It's the hardest part of rugby deciding whether to run and kick, and often it's left to nine and ten, and we might only get it right seventy, seventy-five percent of the time, and that might be a good thing. Um, so we'll we'll see where we are. I'll leave it to Joe to critique me and uh, tell me where I can improve or Connor can improve, and we'll see where we go. Do you find yourself in general at international level being more risk averse? If the games are tighter, and you, you know. You, the forwards are putting in a huge amount of work for us and you want to reward them. You don't want them chasing back to rooks. You know, that's when they get pretty angry with the backs is when they, they've done a lot of good work and they're going backwards then. So, um, look, I think we need to find a balance there and um, it's not a case of we're going to say, right, we're going to kick less in the Six Nations. We'll probably say, let's try and get our set piece better so that we can have a better attacking platform. There was a couple of plays we had planned to play sort of wide wide patterns against Australia and South Africa and we just didn't win that particular line out or you know we got a penalty against us at scrum that you know a couple of them against Australia we didn't feel that were penalties or a couple of throws from um, the hookers that probably were marginal whether they were crooked or not and we would have attacked off them so already you had three or four set pieces if you had run the ball things look a lot different and uh, we know that so there won't be wholesale changes to how we play come Six Nations but we'll have to be smarter what we do. When things are going this well, it's nine wins out of ten now. Will you find yourself thinking about the Six Nations during the club season, kind of excited about getting back, dying to get back with the Irish players? Yeah, I think that's the best thing about the Irish camp at the moment is that no matter what's happening with your club, uh, everyone's looking forward to getting back in to the Irish camp, and it's great. It's it's what it should be. It's uh, Ireland should be the, the pinnacle, and um, that's certainly the case for everyone at the moment. If you're going well with your province, um, if you're winning European games, guys are still looking forward to getting back in and pulling on the green jersey and training under the coaches. And um, yeah, it's a great place at the moment. Yeah, good to hear from Johnny there. Simon, he's always quite forthright and always, I'm sure, a guy you look forward to interviewing. Yeah. I think what I took from that was just the, the... He seems quite happy with Heather. It's funny because he was quite unhappy early on in Racing Metro because he had to kick the leather off the ball the, home to, uh, the whole time. Now at international level, by choice, himself and Joe Schmidt are going that way, which is kind of... And he seems comfortable with that. Yeah, maybe because it literally doesn't feel like there's a huge option there with Ireland. I mean, if you take just the November series... There's been almost no player has burst through a tackle. There's been no huge yardage gain just through individual brilliance, no offloads, of, as we've spoken about since the South Africa game. So maybe they're, they're actually going, there, there is no option here. Maybe if Sean O'Brien and Keane Healy come back. But even then, I mean, they're great ball carriers, but still the other big sides have more ball carriers. No matter how many guys we bring in, even if Ian Henderson and so on come back in, we still won't have as many as South Africa, New Zealand, Australia, even maybe England. We don't have the bulk. So 
maybe Joe Schmidt and Johnny Sexton, they've waited up and said, well, given the players we have and given the amount of access I have to all these players and given the way other international sides are playing, maybe this is the way we're going to play. Because I think everybody assumed we were going to get Leinster or Claremont at the international level, which would be pretty <laughs> incredible if Ireland started playing like that. But maybe that's not, not going to happen. Johnny himself, though, you do need to be able to execute that plan. And it's funny because it's not what we knew him for at the start of his career necessarily, his tactical kicking or even his goal kicking. Um, but he seems to have mastered it now. He seems, he seems as good as... I was about to compare him to Ronald Gower again, as everyone does in, in every sentence or used to do. But in his own right, he seems to be really good, even against a team like Australia, who have seriously good counter-attackers. We didn't give them, certainly as the game progressed, we didn't give them a huge opportunity. Yeah, the section is one thing. Murray is getting better at it. Yeah. And if you look at our, our back lines now that we've picked over the last few games, almost everybody can kick the ball really well. Obviously, Rob Kearney can. Zebo has a really good uh, clearance kick. At one point, with two full-backs in the centre who can both kick really well. Robbie Henshaw has had key kicks against Australia and South Africa. So the pressure, obviously Sexton's kicking an awful lot, but the pressure isn't completely on him to do it either, as it might have been in the past. So we've got a, a backline that's maybe suited to kicking the ball. It's not just that it's a tactic, it's that the players themselves are really good at it. We better get used to it. So Matt Williams is ready to go. Jerry Thorney has popped into the studio. Jerry, thanks for calling in as always. Good morning, it's always a pleasure. Uh, firstly, Joe Schmidt's um, heroism in the face of his appendicitis. <laughs> he actually did the post-match press conference. Yeah, 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 through the pain barrier. Um, Which is extraordinary because, okay, you get through the gate, well, I've never had appendicitis and, and, and nor would I want to have it, but um, mm. having spoken to Ken about it there and others, it's, it, it's uh, not a pretty scene. So maybe you get through the basic requirements of your job, do the job, and then leave straight away. But he, he t- t- talks to RTTV, does the press conference, and then no, didn't do the press conference. Didn't do the press. No, conference. we bailed okay. out of the press conference. We, 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 All right, okay. I know we know our part, no we know we know our place in life. We're we're, we're we're behind television and the pecking yeah. order things. Um, yeah, remarkable. It was funny that Paul O'Connell said afterwards. He, um, you know, they they knew about it, and he said he was a bit standoffish. But then he normally is on match day. It wasn't really, if they hadn't been told about, it, they wouldn't really have noticed. Um, and he never gives away much in victory. He never looks that uh, overly happy with things because he's. And by the same token, if if he presides over defeat, he probably um, doesn't let it get to him too much, and doesn't let it get to the players too much. He tries to strike a balance at all times. And uh, he didn't look too enthused. I'd say he'd been he'd been taken through a fair degree of pain in many respects to see a team let slip a 17-0 lead by half-time. Mm. I mean, it was interesting to note that how often he and Paul O'Connell now speak alike. And they were saying that, you know, the fear drove, O'Connell said, the fear of, of having lost a 17-0 lead was what drove them on the end. And if you think about it, the margins are so fine that if Ireland had lost that game from 17-0 up, on top of losing to New Zealand from 19-0 up a year ago, it would have fairly spooked them and haunted them forevermore, I think. Do you think so? Because yeah, we had placed quite a lot of importance in advance on winning this game and yes. backing it up. And particularly in those circumstances, a, t- think, a tight defeat might have been an issue. Absolutely. They've learned how to win tight games. And, and nearly all frontline games are tight games. As Matt was saying in this programme a week ago, you look at how many close games are Australia have lost this season. They could have easily beaten New Zealand twice and the perspective on their season would have been entirely different. Ireland could so easily beat New Zealand last year, could conceivably beat England. Um, but this year, um, this season, they've won three from three in November and they've backed up beating South Africa by beating Australia. I think it was the bare minimum requirement, really, if you want to be serious contenders at a World Cup, you should be beating Australia at home when they're just starting out on a new coach, playing their 14th of 15 test matches in a six-month period. Um, you're at home, you know, you're on a roll, you've just beaten South Africa at home. You've rested up 12 of your frontliners against Georgia the week before. In, 
in reality, Ireland should be winning this game, kind of game mm. if they want to be taken seriously. If they want to take themselves seriously, containers. Now, we all know in 2007 they went to the World Cup feeling fairly chipper about themselves and declaring they were going there to win it, and we all know what happened. I think there is more um, feet on the ground this time around, and I think there is an acceptance that maybe three... Uh, in the world flatters them a little bit that they rode their luck a little bit to get the three wins this November um, and it doesn't really guarantee much when it comes to the next World Cup what I would say though is that if you come within one play of beating the best side in the world and then you beat the second best side in the world and then you beat Australia who came to the November Tour I think as the third best side in the world you must go to the World Cup believing you can beat anybody and that must be a very nice place to be It all sounds pretty good Matt, what do you think? It's very well I don't like in our position, you've got to look at the evidence, look at what's presented for you, try and take out the emotion, and and uh, really Ireland would have to be feeling pretty good. You know, it, it, you, you can only beat who uh, they put out in front of you. They they could have beaten New Zealand, and um, you know I think the best thing for for Ireland is the way they've defended, because you you do build any championship, any winning series is built on defence, and uh, you'd have to say their defence was absolutely uh, magnificent across the series and and they they tackled both South Africa and Australia uh, into submission their defense was was very brave they're probably the one aspect that I've pointed out and and that is a negative and this is not taking anything away from from great victories that we've seen uh, was I think their attack has been relatively poor and and that's a concern because you're still – and Jerry was talking about winning tight games and they've, they've been in the lead in, in mm. these games. There's going to come a day where they need to score and they're going to be a tight game and they're going to have to come back. And right now that, that running game is just isn't there for them. So that's probably – that is our real concern and something that it's not, they're not perfect and rugby never is. But certainly where they are, uh, 12 months out from a, or 10 months out from a World Cup with the six nations to come. Remember, they've got a big advantage on Australia where the six, uh, the, the uh, European countries obviously get the six nations and then some warm-up games prior to the World Cup. So there's still a lot of development in this Irish side. Uh, just on the the one drawback that uh, Matt mentions there, Simon talked to Johnny Sexton, we've heard the, this interview earlier on, Jerry, about this rather limited type mm. of game plan in an attacking sense. And he says that, look, Schmidt, well, not only Schmidt accepts that you have to play different internationally, but Sexton says that Schmidt would accept that what he did at club level might not be good enough at international level. Mm. What would you say to that? I'm surprised to hear it, to be honest. I mean, mm. I need to think about it a bit longer. It is quite a restrictive game plan uh, that Ireland have tended to use. It's adaptable. And they're a clever side. I mean, they adapted their defence in the second half. They adapted their tactics. They were getting engaged in a glorified form of beach rugby with Australia. Reined it in at half-time with, with Joe Schmidt and Les Kiss and Simon Easterby. Came out in the second half. Uh, didn't kick the ball away as much. Um, played it narrower, played it tighter. Didn't take any risks on the ball, really. What we saw in the Six Nations. Didn't hardly turn over the ball. Um, you know, you, the best form of attack is defence. and or The best form of defence is attack, rather. And you keep the possession. The opposition can't do much to you. Um, they they soaked up that, and they also didn't commit as many to rucks, so they found out more. They were committing too many to rucks in the first half, and they were a little bit passive. They improved their line speed, and that's a sign of a very good team that can adapt, and it has always done so under Joe Schmidt. But I would agree with Matt. As he was saying, I was even thinking the same thing. I was watching France-Argentina, and France-Argentina is possibly Ireland's route to the semi-finals of the World Cup after Italy. And that's very order. Italy, France, Argentina. And Argentina went to Paris on Saturday night and did what Argentina do. Uh, mauled it, trucked it up, one-off runners, um, 
kicked four drop goals, <laughs> built up a lead and held out. And France broke them down once but could, and came close at the end, but Argentina held on for a win. And that's the fifth time in nine matches they've beaten France. But Ireland, on a gluey pitch particularly, as, as Stade de France was, would have struggled one ventures against Argentina as well. Mm. Uh, that's why you know, you'd have to be a bit cautionary about where Ireland are at at the moment in the sense that maybe third place in the world does slightly flatter them and what they've achieved this autumn is no more than what they should have done if they're going to be serious cont- contenders. But I would have thought, like, if, if they're chasing a the game, they're going to have to come up with a few offloads, a few strike moves. Australia's strike moves, spot moves, were way better than Ireland's. You know, the way they attacked the outside channels and got runners into space. Ireland weren't doing that. And partly because of the line speed that Australia employed in defence, partly because of the physicality that Michael Cech has already added to this team. And if you were, I don't know, if, I'd be worried about Australia. I'm glad they're not in our pool because I think they're going to only get better in the next 12 months. And I think, you know, you've got, you've got players, admittedly they've got three out halves on the pitch in the last section of the game. And Cooper and Beale and Foley and Ireland, like, um, you know, don't have the same array maybe of game breakers that Australia do, but I'm I'm a little bit surprised with Joe's comments. Matt, just on um, and I suppose there's Sexton's comment, Sexton's, Sexton's re- reflection on on what Joe Schmidt yeah. feels, but we know they have a very close relationship, Matt, and uh, I'm sure they talk a lot about the direction this team should take. It's an interesting one because I would have thought that the issue is that that if Joe Schmidt could get the level that he had at, at, at club rugby into the international team, that would be ideal. But the problem is that you don't have as much time with players. Whereas, uh, you know, it seems to be that he feels that maybe you need to step up and you need to just need to play a different way at international level. What do you think, judging from your own experiences, having coached internationally and coached at club level? You're definitely, it's a different game. And you are limited by the skill set of your players as they arrive to you. Now, that sounds like stating the bleeding obvious, but... When you're at clubs, you can develop. You spend, you get a lot more opportunity to develop systems and plays and time. You spend a lot of time with guys, you know, especially in the northern hemisphere. You know, it's, it is really twelve months of the year you're with with those guys. Where where with um, the national side, if you even look at what you, what what uh, Ireland had to do in that first game is is their centre combinations the first time they ever played together and they played in those positions for the first time at that at that level. So you certainly don't get that. Uh, let that level of of um, of cohesion, and when you lose someone like Brian O'Driscoll, who you know has that understanding, they built it up with Johnny Sexton and Gordon Darcy. That three quarter line, they knew each other inside out. You had Rob Carney uh, there. There's there's four of your main line play with each other all the time. There's this huge amount of understanding and and co- uh, cohesiveness that you don't have. So so that's exactly that is exactly right and. That's what Michael Checker is also learning. However, to uh, th- there is another side to that, that if you say you are going to go to a World Cup and you really want to give it a shake, and this Irish side is capable of doing that, as Jerry said, they should have beaten Australia. They were the favourites. There's no two ways about it. You know, everyone, I said, everyone is going to win. I said, Ireland's going to win. And it's, I think it'll be close, but Ireland, well, I think they'll win. And they, they did in the end. They got a bit lucky, come penalties, which I'll talk about in a minute. But if you're going into a World Cup, you've got to take that ball forward in the three ways. You've got to have a kicking game. You've got to be able to maul it well, but you've got to run it. And right now, Ireland kick better than just about anyone in the world. Their mauling game is is very, very good, as we've seen. But their running game and their ball-in-hand game is not at the level 
that will give them a really big dividend at the World Cup. It's funny though, Matty, Simon Zebo, the one time Ireland did try mm. an offload, yeah. uh, unfortunately conceded possession and Ireland conceded a try through some fair, uh, weak enough defending after that point. Uh, is that the kind of thing that might li- might confirm in Joe Schmidt's head that, look, we're never going to play a Leinster style of rugby, we're never going to play a Claremont style of rugby, we're going to keep this safe? Well, you know, I found out on, uh, I, I put a, something out on Twitter and I found out something that I already knew that Irish people are very good winners and don't like it when someone says we did a couple of things wrong because I said there was no offloads and they said, well, look what happened. Australia <laughs> scored when Steve did it. But, you know, you, you, if you look at Ireland's tries, if we do it on the other side of this, they're scoring tries, what I call tackle zero tries. So they scored a try against South Africa's a mall. Rob Carney's try against South Africa was a turnover score a try. Uh, Tommy Bow that won the game because that was a 14-point turnaround because Australia were going to score if Tommy doesn't intercept that. But their tries are not getting – there's no build-up. If we look back to when they played uh, New Zealand, the tries were absolutely magnificent. There was plenty of build-up, plenty of uh, of really good rugby putting pressure on New Zealand before they scored their tries. Now, that if you're capable of doing that against New Zealand, you're capable of doing it against anyone. So I, I think just saying, well, look, you made a mistake – uh, Zubo made a mistake, therefore we're never going to do it again. I mean, it's a pretty limited view of the world and really doesn't hold up to a lot of scrutiny. So they, they've got to go back and start saying, look, look what we did against New Zealand. Let's put, let's keep that in our game. Let's keep that positiveness in our game. Let's not show away from it completely because if you do, you'll fail. That's, that's the bottom line. They can't possibly go forward with not having any uh, sort of running game. And if we really are honest, if we and your listeners aren't going to like this, and it's not an Australian saying because I wanted Ireland to win, yeah. but you, you know they they got lucky. Their last two penalties, you know they weren't penalties. There's just and, and and it was it was a bit of luck. Every every bounce of the ball, every rub of the green went Ireland's way. And there'll be a day when that doesn't happen. And when it doesn't, you. You've got to be able to do something about it. Yeah, I suppose. Well, the TMO did take about ten minutes to decide whether or not that, that was, pass had been uh, and give a try that didn't look as if it'd been grounded under the line. Or not, so the ball bounced very kindly for the Australian first try. For See, Matt, this is it. We're already abusing um, you. <laughs> Stop being so. Polished. No, Have I would say. I would Have say, a look at it. The ball was never projected towards the opponent's dead ball line, and that's what the that's it can travel forward as much as that's no. The, the grounding might have a problem with Matt. Travel forward doesn't matter if it travels forward. It's where it's where the the passer projects. And uh, it's, a, it's a grounding that yeah, it's a grounding that Jerry has the issue with. Oh well, mate. Uh, if it's one blade of grass, one blade of grass. Well, it happened but, right and, underneath and, the referee's nose. So I don't understand why he couldn't make that call anyway on the grounding. I didn't see. I didn't. It didn't look like it was ground on the line. You have to admit the ball bounced very nicely for Nick Phipps off that deflection of Michael Foley when Zebo did go for the offload. You know what I mean? Yeah, mate. I thought I, I got to say that, mate. I thought the fifth second try was one of the best tries I've seen. Best in try of the autumn this year. Yeah. Yeah. I thought it was a magnificent try. Mm-hmm. Um, I think what, what stuck in the craw of, of Checker and I went through it two or three times was when, when they said Slipper didn't uh, enter that ruck and it was turnover ball and he said he didn't enter through the gate and he came in from the side and that was three points. And, mate, when you go through the replay, he's technically perfect. Slipper, he comes in straight over the Irish player on the ground and it wasn't a penalty. Look, we can argue either way. and I don't, I, I'm not begrudging anyone, Ireland. I'm not... Talk it down. When I've said this, people have been at me a bit. What I'm saying is that when the day comes when you don't get the calls, Ireland have got to be able to run the ball better than they are to do something about it. They're going to need to score some points somewhere, and they can't rely on the intercept and the mall. Just they've got to be something else. 
Jerry, is that is that mainly down to the fact that we're missing Keane Healy and Sean O'Brien? Though I mean, they're the guys that have been able to get us uh, get us like the hard yards, and we didn't really have we don't we, we didn't have like for like replacements for either of those two players when it comes to actually carrying the ball. All the more so when Sean Cronin didn't start when they made the decision to go with Rory Best because I thought Cronin gave them that a bit against South Africa and, and filled that void. If you like, you have to have ball carriers. You know, it's the one thing that actually Australia are lacking at the moment is big carriers up front. Um, it's all through their backs, it's all through the brilliance and creativity of their backs and the replacement backs that they try and prize open defences. And it's wonderful to watch, but they could do with a little bit more go forward momentum. All the top teams have to have it. Um, you know, hard, direct runs. It's a game of collisions and there's no avoiding the collisions. And even if you're punching above your weight, you still have to go forward. And you're right, Keane Healy and Sean O'Brien, now that Stephen Ferris have retired, are the only two players apart from Sean Cronin who give Ireland that go forward momentum. And if they came back into the mix, I think, if you think back to that New Zealand game, Matt, that, O'Brien's performance and Healy's performance that day, particularly O'Brien's, was hugely in- instrumental in Ireland having so much go forward ball. I just want to move on to Paul O'Connell, um, Joe Schmidt dynamic, Jerry, because mm-hmm. you said earlier that they're starting to speak alike, that O'Connell is starting to speak a little bit like Joe Schmidt. Uh, and this is, a, this is another challenge of international level. You have to get used to the people, as Schmidt says himself, from the different provinces yes. and how you work with them. Mm. How is that looking to you now? Is it a pretty it, well-oiled machine? It's, it's very interesting, and it really has developed like, the, like uh, much else of this team. But I think what's developed the most, arguably, is the infusion of monsterness in the team. If you know what I mean, I'm sure those are, that's not grammatically correct or whatever. <laughs> but you know what I'm trying to say here. Um, it started, I think, with the very corresponding game a year ago against Australia, when um, perhaps Ireland went in with too much mental information and technical information about what they were going to try and do that day, and forgot to a little bit of a degree that first off rugby is a fight, always has been, always will be. It's just a legalized form of boxing. It's a fight, and you go out there and you fight physically first before you do anything. If you don't bring the fight, you just don't compete. And Paul O'Connell said, admitted as much that had been an eye-opener that they forgot to bring enough intensity to fixture. So it was always like that they would do that a year on against the same opponents, and right enough they did, and they had to because Czechos Australia brought even more physical intensity than they did a year ago, mm. and they will continue to do that under Michael Czech. That will be the one trademark of his team, and he's keeping, it looks as if, the innate brilliance of the Wallabies that they bring to games like this, that they have to bring, if they're to stand a chance of beating bigger sides like South Africa New Zealand. So yeah, I think it's been very interesting to watch the development, and they talk more and more like O'Connell, is always been a kind of a little bit of an Alex Ferguson type post-match figure in the sense he never looks as if he's going to celebrate and n- nor does Joe and I take Shane Horgan's point on television Japers lads cheer up a little bit and, and, yeah, you know, Shane relax and join, the, join the moment I hope a little these bit. guys do actually yeah. enjoy these times they're good times they are and you've got to enjoy at least a Saturday night and I'm sure they did in the end and they're just trying very very hard to keep their feet firmly on the ground and pick through performances because they are performance driven and they both know that the performances this autumn have been far from perfect and, and that last Saturday was far from perfect as well but another interesting aspect of the monsterness of this team is that there were only three monster players in the side that placed Australia a year ago. Um, and they're the three standout players, Conor Murray, um, Peter Armani, who was absolutely sensational in Saturday. I mean, he could have been man of the match himself, as well as Paul O'Connell, who at 34 and 36 between the quarterfinals and the semifinals of the World Cup, you just hope he keeps fit because he is... He's the first person now that Mike, that Joe name checks afterwards, you know, led from the front by Paul O'Connell. I think he's become to appreciate what a wonderful player O'Connell is in the same way that Warren Gatland did when he was on the line soon he wanted Paulie to stay and how impressed he was with him I think even Warren was taken back by how good Paulie was Martin Williams you know, said he was the best captain he ever played on this is a remarkable leader Ireland have at the moment in Paul O'Connell and to add it to that I think Joe 
Schmidt has learned what Munster players are more about and they've learned what he's more about and according to were I think eight in the squad on Saturday. Yeah. So like they're they're he's becoming more of with them and they're becoming more of with him and he perhaps now realizes that, you know, they are every bit as their attention to detail is every bit as good as, as Leinster players that he would have known better. How's that looking to you, Matt? It sounds pretty good, that O'Connell Schmidt dynamic. I think all on side blessed with this rich heritage of leadership. Um, it, it's passed down, and I'm I'm not waxing lyrical. There's literally there is a lineage that's that's you know from from Willie John McBride on to on to Kieran, you know, in, in the 1980s, and and then that's passed on, and, and and you know, it's it's amazing the number of great leaders that Ireland produces in in rugby terms, and you, you know, we've, Brian's just retired now. Brian developed into a fantastic captain. And to see how Brian's journey from from when I was coaching him as captain against Australia that first day, and he spoke to me in that week, he didn't have a clue. And Brian will tell you that himself, but he developed into one of the great leaders. And then you have Paul O'Connell, who is, you know, two, uh, another Lions captain and another magnificent leader, backed up with Rory Best, who is probably the best captain I've ever coached. And then you've got Jamie Heaslip learning his trade uh, underneath those guys. It's it's, it's fantastic. And these guys, they have an aura that fills the stadium, like Martin Johnson. You could see Paul there on Saturday. You, you know, he, he was running. He was managing the referee very, very well. He managed that game, as he does always. He's just such a massive, influential figure. And and that relationship with Joe um, will develop and change and grow. And, and Paul Paul's, you know, an exceptionally smart man, and he, he would appreciate what what Joe's bringing to the table there. And the other part, that Paul's hungry. Now, I don't, I don't speak to Paul. I haven't spoken to him in, in a number of years, not for any bad reason, but I don't know him that well. But he's hungry because these guys want to win. The top guys, what drives Paul at that age that Jerry was just saying, he's a competitor and he wants to win. And he'll look straight into the Joe Schmidt's eyes and think, this bloke can get me what I want. And if he does, he'll support him. If he doesn't, then they'll try and bump him and get someone else. But they won't because Joe's an excellent coach. So that whole dynamic of his magnificent leadership and his growth and, and hunger that still continues in his career will drive on that too. That's a good point. Another thing about it, the relationship I was just thinking about on is that um, O'Connell even wants to go on the Argentina tour. Um, really wanted to go because he wants another two weeks of working with Joe Schmidt. I mean, he can't get enough of working with Joe Schmidt. He really believes Joe Schmidt's going to make him a better player and make his team a better team. And so he, they clearly have become believing each other more and more, and it works both ways. Very quick word on Robbie Henshaw to end things at the other end of the mm. experience scale. Looked pretty comfortable out there. Yeah, and really grew into the game and grew more influential in it. And his defence was very strong. And I take Maddie's point about that he's only just come into the team to replace the greatest attacking player Irish rugby has ever produced. So it's going to take a while to make a tone for that loss of O'Driscoll's um, creativity. But Henshaw is physically built for this game and now it looks as if he's very much mentally built for this game. He's got a very sound temperament as well. So, yeah, I mean, he could be he could be something very special. OK, we'll wait and see. Listen, brilliant stuff. Jerry, thank you. Matt, thanks Cheers. for you. Pleasure, guys. Modern day coaching. What is it all about? Paralysis by analysis. Infiltrated by a load of spoofers and bluffers. Fellas with earpieces stuck in their ears. Psychologists, Clyde Woodward, statisticians, dietitians, and as Mick O'Connell alluded to, God save us. That relationship between Schmidt and Paul O'Connell is interesting. In fact, I read 
Anthony Daly's autobiography in the last couple of weeks and he made an interesting point. Daly met up, uh, had a meeting with Joe Schmidt at one stage mm-hmm. uh, himself and one of the selectors uh, went in and chatted to Schmidt and picked his brains and Daly f- found the guy fascinating as you might expect and some of what Daly says, uh, I don't think any of it's shocking necessarily, it's along the lines of what we hear about Schmidt but there's a lot more detail in it. So for example, delegation is a big part of things, organisation, those kind of things but a specific example of that uh, revolved around O'Connell where Schmidt says, well, why don't you why don't you ask the players to motivate themselves, motivate each other? I mean, I use Paul O'Connell. What does he say? Uh, you got to delegate more. I leave the cycling up to Pauly, for example, which seems like the most obvious thing in the world. The players are all going to respond to O'Connell's motivation, so there's not necessarily need for Schmidt to get in there with too much of the hyping Rar-ra-ra-ra-ra-ra-ra-ra-ra-ra-ra-ra-ra-ra-ra-ra-ra-ra-ra-ra-ra-ra-ra-ra-ra-ra-ra-ra-ra-ra-ra-ra-ra-
and then he just reflects that back. So if everybody's saying, oh, this is terrible, this is awful, he's kind of there going, yeah, it pretty much is. <laughs> really, I mean, considering where we were last year, this is shocking. You know what I mean? That's that's Brendan Rodgers. So he's not really demonstrating an ability, in my opinion, to to take the bull by the horns and sort of wrestle the bull back, Yeah. Uh, you know, dominate the bull. It's more uh, running away from the bull, maybe dodging into a side street and hoping that the bull uh, just continues on down the main path. Katie Taylor is world champion for a fifth time. She beat Yana Alexnevna from Azerbaijan in the final. A fairly convincing performance. Darren O'Neill, well, former Irish team captain at the 2012 Olympic Games, is in Jeju. He was at the fight, Darren. And uh, first, first, I suppose, what sort of form was Katie in afterwards? Yeah, great form, obviously. You know, she just have to win the world title, um, let alone, I suppose, her fifth world title at this stage. But, uh, yeah, she's in great form. And, you know, it was... It was going to be very, very tricky for her because she was in against a quality opponent. So to come away with the victory, she's delighted, you know. It was a, uh, a cagey fight as expected. I think Pete said in advance, listen, she's only going to... Uh, we knew she wasn't going to be um, getting involved, uh, trading a huge amount. She'd be scoring with single punches. But uh, as usual, I guess one of Katie's great, um, great strengths is how adaptable she is to her opponents. And she knew what to expect. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely the case. You know, uh, the boxing is a very, very good counterpuncher. So she... Uh, she had to be very careful not to get sucked into a fight because, you know, that's the case where you leave yourself susceptible to get getting countered or getting caught with punches. So Katie was very, very clever and very, very, I suppose, uh, uh, I suppose economical in her punching. Um, she was very effective at getting her backhand off to the body against, uh, I suppose, a rangy southpaw. And, you know, it took quite a lot of energy out of her to do so, but she managed to do it and, uh, and, and did so quite effectively. One judge, Darren, gave the uh, first round to her opponent. A couple of judges gave her the third round. Was that about right, or would you have had Katie winning every round there? I, well, I easily had Katie winning every yeah. round. Uh, the third round, she was a little bit, uh, I suppose, a little bit more relaxed and uh, wasn't pushing the fight as much. So maybe that's what they were looking at or something. But I don't know. It was quite confusing to me. I, I thought her win every round quite quite comfortably. Um, you know, I suppose the last round then, Pete had looked up to me. Thankfully, I could see... I could see the screens, the, the TV screens were just in front of me, so he looked up to me to see what the score was, and I was able to tell him that it was level on two judges' cards going into the last round, you know, and it was a matter of if those two judges went against us, she could have lost the fight, um, or if even one went against us, it would have went to a countback, which, in which case the judges would have to push red or blue as to who they thought won the fight. So, you know, he was able to tell Katie, listen, you need to up, up the game a bit, and, and she did so quite, quite effectively, you know. How close are you to emotionally uh, to, the, to the fight itself there, Darren? It must be hard to remain in any way detached. You'd know Katie well, you'd know Pete well. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, well, I mean, look, I obviously know Katie quite well and Pete and Thor who are in the corners, but uh, yeah, it's, it's, I suppose I kind of broke the, the mould a little bit today in the sense that someone in the media stand was standing up and roaring instructions, <laughs> but uh, or, I suppose helpful hints, at least I hope they were, but uh, yeah, it was it was, it was uh, nerve-wracking to say at least. Uh, to be honest with you, I'm, I'm nearly more nervous when I'm watching others box than, I suppose, friends box than when I'm boxing myself, so it was... Uh, it was it was quite unique, you know. Can you just lastly put just put it into context? I mean, five world titles. Mary Com, the famous Indian fighter, uh, achieved something similar. Katie's in that bracket now. Pete said it's unbelievable. She's a legend now. I mean, she was she was a legend before. But uh, can you put it into context? There's just that relentless drive and that ability she has to seemingly keep getting better and keep winning these these competitions. When a lot of sports people, after maybe one, if they've reached a pinnacle, it's hard for them to come back again and again. Yeah, of course, it definitely is. You know, some of them, they just settle for that. And there's a question I asked Katie after the fight. I said, how does she stay motivated? I mean, she's after winning six European gold, five 
world goals now and, and an Olympic gold. And, you know, to put it in perspective, Mary Com has won five world gold medals. Mary Com does not have an Olympic medal. So as far as I'm concerned, Katie Taylor is the most successful female athlete on this planet of all time. And uh, I, have, I have long said that she's the best Irish athlete of all time. So, I mean, you know, when you take, take all that into account, she, she's absolutely outstanding. And I, I asked her how she stayed motivated. She, and she, she basically said that each challenge provides a new challenge, you know, and everyone is trying to catch her. So the challenge for her now is to try to stay ahead of the game, try to stay ahead of the pack, you know. So it, it's absolutely outstanding how, how professional and committed she is to keeping improving herself, you know. And I did say, or I suppose... I don't say that she's improving on her faults because she doesn't, have, she doesn't really have many. She's, you know, with that record, she can't have too many faults, but she still managed to, to find little areas to improve on, which is, which is remarkable, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Listen, Darren, great to talk to you over there and well done to everybody. Thanks a million. Super, thanks very much. Yeah, I'm sure Darren should, should have been um, totally impartial along ringside. You're, you're probably not... As he says, it's maybe a break from departure to be giving tactical advice mm. to one of the fighters involved, but That's fine. he's I a mean, top, top-level fighter himself and uh, fair play. Yeah, and if anyone's got a problem, yeah, exactly, <laughs> you yeah. know, what are you going to do about it, quite frankly? A couple of things on this, uh, just to add, are the reaction of her opponent, Alex Savna, was uh, to winning her silver medal. Was very, We talked about Sofia Ochegeva on mm. the show last week and her rather... I would say grumpy reaction mm. to being given a silver medal. I think it was quite clear who the winner was with this one. Alex Saban was absolutely delighted with her silver. She may, may as well have won gold and, uh, and fair play to her on that one. And boxing, organi- organisers of boxing tournaments around the world, listen up please, try and find a new entrance tune for music rather than just Eye of the Tiger. Yeah, I mean... I mean, it's... It's, yeah, it's 30, kind of been done. It's 30 years old now. <laughs> done at this I mean, you know, it is, it is it's quite something. Mm. Um, I mean, it's a hell of a... It's a heck of a song. It's a heck of a power ballad. Yeah, it really is. But, you know, there's... One of the great boxing-related power ballads. Probably the best, Murph. Ooh, well... Simply the best? I mean, that worked well for Chris Eubank. Yeah, true. And there was one from Rocky Four. That was a great tune. There was Cavalry Aristocata from, from um, Raging Bull. Not really a power ballad, though. Yeah, but, I mean, a great boxing song. Mm, nah. We're talking power ballads here. We're talking boxing. It's a very specific area we're delving into here, Ken. Well done to Katie Taylor on her fifth world title. Honourable mentions for performances, for great performances, great moments over the weekend, Murph. Go to Odell Beckham Jr., uh, receiver, wide receiver for the New York Giants, who produced the catch of the season, possibly. Well, I've tweeted a link to this earlier on um, today, so... Uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's it. a one-handed uh, takedown, which is pretty impressive, I must say. It's a pretty impressive uh, b- bit of business there. Uh, yes, yeah, right? so I, I was I tweeted a link to his warm-up, which was interesting. He was essentially doing the same thing in his warm-up with his massive headphones on, just going around catching mm. these one-handed catches, contorting his body in ridiculous ways in order to stay in play. That was uh, part of the most part of the uh, impressive nature of the catch. But also, Shane Lowry, quick. Yeah, into, into the world's top 50. Um, he stood on the 18th tee in uh, Dubai. Uh, yesterday, knowing that uh, a positive result, he, I mean, he not all of the scores were in by the time he was uh, driving down the 18th, down the 18th, but he knew that he had to finish in the top 13 uh, to make it into the world into the world's top 50. Uh, thereby, of course, getting him uh, a place at the Augusta at the Masters yep. in Augusta uh, in April. So he hits the drive. There's a stream running down the middle of the fairway that he's aiming for. And uh, he sees the ball arcing towards the stream, and I'm sure his entire golfing life uh, flashes before his eyes. But instead of the ball going into the stream, it hit a rock on the banks of the stream, (laughs) and the rock then propelled the drive 40 yards further down the fairway than it would otherwise have gone, uh, thereby enabling to hit five wood (laughs) into the green, uh, secure two putt for birdie, 
and finish up fifth on his own. You take the breaks when you can get them, Shane. Uh, uh, well, yeah. I mean, well, he, he did reference a number of uh, bad luck occasions that he had at the start of the year. So, I mean, hey, why not? You you, you take you pays your money, it takes your chances. So, and he finished in the top ten in the race for race to Dubai standings as well. So, all in all, a very nice day's work. For sounds Ken good. Larry. Nice achievement. Ken, thank you very much. Thank you, Owen. Thank you, Kieran. Thank you, Ken. Thank you, Owen. Thanks many for listening. Thanks we sure. will chat to you later on with the football pack, podcast, big Premier League weekend. So plenty to talk about in that one. Take care. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.